greetings. I'm coming to you today with the first of many book reviews. I'm starting out with The Book of Phoenix, written by Niger-American author Nnedi Okorafor. The book was published in 2015, and it is the prequel to the novel Who Fears Death, which she published in 2010. The novel Who Fears Death came first, but I'm choosing to review the Book of Phoenix first because it gives context to a central theme in both novels, which is the great book. Now, you'll see if you are a TV watcher, if you have HBO and you watch HBO, you'll see um, an adaptation of her book, Who Fears Death, in the coming future. And it's positioned as the light-skinned Nurus versus the dark-skinned Okekes in post-apocalyptic post-apocalyptic Sudan. But the truth is, the Nurus are representative of the Arabic invaders. Arabs are not light-skinned Africans. They are invaders, not unlike other invaders, the Portuguese, British, French, but they have conquered the area, a lot of the area of North Africa at this time. When you conquer a people, you don't just conquer them physically, you conquer them mentally, physically, spiritually, spiritually, emotionally. You tear down everything, especially the mind. That's why you conquer people for real in a mind. So the Nuru's great book positions the Okekes underneath them in a very subservient position. Um, and they come to believe it. Everybody comes to believe this subservient position as if it's from on high, from a, a, you know, a higher power. Anyway... So the the first chapter is titled Found, and it opens with a line, nobody really knows who wrote the great book. Most believed that the great book, the great book's author was a mad yet holy, always holy prophet who'd taken refuge in a cave. And then we go on to, to meet an old couple Sunutil and his wife Husaina, and they are desert dwellers and they are nomads and they just love each other their love is so adorable it comes through on the pages they love each other and they support each other but they also understand that people need time alone so Sunutil gives his wife some time alone at home and he goes off to a, a, a venture in the desert takes some time alone in the, an adventure in the desert now, this is a post-apocalyptic area, right? So they're, they've gone beyond computers, and they now have the most advanced technology. Even in the desert, he has his little portable with him on the side so he can keep in touch with his wife. So he's out in the desert. He sets up his little tent, and he's exploring, and he comes upon a cave. And so inside the cave, he finds old technology, the ghosts of old technology, and his portable accesses an old file from one of the um, old computers in that cave. 
And so when the file downloads, the icon that pops up is in the shape of a bird that seems to be looking over its shoulder. For those who know that symbol, that is the Sankofa symbol. And so when he gets back to his tent with the file downloaded to his portable, he gets comfortable and he clicks on the audio file. So he listens and the guy goes, the male voice at the time, goes through chapter one, blah, 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 and drones on, and it's kind of boring until he scrolls through to section 38. And then memory extracts comes up. And memory extracts is a term that's familiar to him from his childhood teachings, his childhood learnings. As a child, he loved language and words and stories so much that when he became an adult, he became the recorder and the storyteller, and he would gather the stories and recite them for those who could not read. And he was, you know, able to understand many different languages, and um, it was who he was. So once he heard memory extracts, he was like, okay, this is going to get interesting. And then specifically, memory extract number five, the Book of Phoenix. And it was announced to him in a clear language. It stuck out to him. So he got comfortable. He clicked on the icon and he listened. And then it was no longer a male voice. It was a female voice. And she said, to tell my tale, I will use the old African tools of story, spoken words. They are worthier of my trust and they'll last longer. And during shadowy times, spoken words carry further than words typed, imaged, or written. The next chapter, titled Specimen, introduces us to our narrator in the place that she calls home, Tower 7. That's how she views initially Tower 7 because she's a voracious reader. She devoured books like candy and the definition of home for her was one's place of residence. Tower 7 up until the time that she started narrating her story for us was the only place of residence she had ever known. But it wasn't a home, not in any anybody's cultural or traditional sense of the word. It was a place of business, a geopolitically corporate business for some, a prison for others, those who, like our narrator, resided within Tower 7's walls. Tower number 7 of 7, towers all located in America. Our neighbor, our neighbor, oh my goodness, our narrator was able to learn all about the towers because she was curious and when she requested materials to read they gave it to her um she was always given what she wanted to read um for reading material because she was seen as harmless at the time they were giving her the materials to read she wasn't considered a threat of any kind she was a perfectly contained specimen to quote the book and for specimen knowledge was in power. So, Tower 7 was located in Times Square, directly in Times Square, 
And for anybody who knows Times Square, you know what it's like even now, even before apocalyptic times that hopefully will never come. But um, for those who don't know, Times Square is like, well, I'm sure a lot of people have seen it in movies. Um, Times Square is similar to Las Vegas. It's always on. It's lights. It's huge screens on the sides of the building. It never closes. Times Square never shuts down all day, all night, open people walking. I know because I grew up in New York City, and if it's a night out and you want to just be out, it could be 2 o'clock in the morning, there's somewhere to get something to eat, there's people performing, there's people getting coffee, there's people doing whatever, 2 o'clock in the morning, 3 o'clock in the morning, it never closes. So this is Times Square is where Tower 7 was located. And at the time that we're introduced to Tower 7, it's way in the future. And a lot of the island of Manhattan is underwater. But where Tower 7 is located, um, geologists had decided that the ground was stable and the area was perfect for surveillance and security of the building. So they were pretty secure about their tower. She read all about the abominations contained in the 39 floors of her home. She understood the word abomination from all kinds of angles because she read African shaman retellings. She read Native American shaman retellings. She read the Tanakh. She read the Bible. She read the Quran. She read information from sorcerers, wizards, and Buddha. She understood abomination from a variety of cultural perspectives. And the things going on in Tower 7 definitely fit the definition of abominations. People and creatures were being invented and altered or both. From her reading, she also knew of the other floors in the tower, although she'd never actually been allowed to see them in person for herself. The lobby was different from all the other floors. There was no research there. It was an artificially natural wonderland of beautiful greenery and just a welcoming place for people to come and view. It was like a a tourist stop. There were no tours of the entire building, but you could come see Tower 7. It was a public place, so they could see it. Why wouldn't Tower 7 be considered safe? That was a way they kept, kept things private, but still public, because people had, quote-unquote, access to the lobby, and they loved it. It was amazing. Lots of pictures, lots, lots of photos. I've been to Tower 7. It's beautiful. It's safe. So the center of the entire building was... Um, around like a circular, a huge tree grew up in the middle of it. And the tree was, of course, accelerated. Nothing in that tower was normal, no matter how it looked to the tourists. Nothing in that tower was normal. So the tree in the center of the tower was some kind of special um, soil was put to make it grow an accelerated at an accelerated rate. It wasn't, they couldn't predict, the scientists underpredicted, if that's a word, they underpredicted the growth, 
and the the tree grew through all 39 floors. It didn't just stay at the lobby. So they kept having to cut a circle, cut a circle, cut a circle until eventually the tree in the middle of the lobby grew through the entire building, throughout out the top of the building. So it was called the backbone. You could see it out the top of the building. The floor, the tree was already 39, I'm sorry. The building was already 39 floors and this tree grew through past the building. But they loved it because it was like, yeah, this is what attracts, this is the main attraction. But even the tree was kind of an abomination if you think about it. It was natural, but it was still like, they had messed with it. The scientists just kept messing with it. And they um, they didn't know what they were doing till it was too late. Kind of like how they um, treated the human beings they had in their hands. But yeah, um, that tree was eventually called the backbone. And it's a major, it actually becomes a major character in the story. So she was um, told by doctors that her name was Phoenix and that she was named after the birthplace of her donor's egg. So she was definitely a human just because she was made from human DNA. She was taken from a donor's egg and fertilized and put into a carrier, um, a surrogate mother, and carried by a surrogate mother. And um, her growth was accelerated like the backbone tree I just described. She was an accelerated organism. So they didn't even talk to her like she was a human being. And I don't think they viewed her. I know they didn't view her as a human being. She was only two years old in physical age, but she looked about 40. And And she was told by her doctors that she would remain looking 40 for however long she stayed alive. If she was alive for 500 years, she would still look 40. Um, She said to them, I was like a plant that they grew for the sake of harvesting. That's how Phoenix was told to view herself. And when she's talking about them, she's talking about the people she calls Big Eye. Big Eye was an intentionally... Um, I'm sorry, Big Eye was a corporate entity that intentionally harvested African subjects specifically in order to harness any juju powers that they had on a grand corporate scale for grand corporate power and profits. They did it publicly and they were completely unchecked. Completely. So... Uh, Big Eye was Tower 7's scientists, lab assistants, technicians, doctors, administrators, guards, and police. And she called them Big Eye. She and the others who resided there called them Big Eye because they were always watching. Always watching. And after reading the book, I'm like, they always watching. But there was a lot that they didn't see. (laughs) A lot. She spent her time reading, eating, running on a treadmill, and meeting with doctors, and gazing out her windows. So she had a lot of windows, so she could see the city. 
She could see the sky. She could see plants outside. And eventually they gave her her own plant. And every time she touched it, it would grow. So they were like, they gave me, she was like, they gave me a gift. But it wasn't a gift. It was part of them experimenting. What could she do with that plant? How would she affect that plant? Her first, her friend, Saeed, was very, very, very dear to her. She actually had a friend. She lived alone for the most part, but she had mealtimes with others. And the others who were of African descent like her didn't talk to her for some reason. And maybe because she didn't talk to them, she was attracted to Saeed because he was eating a bowl of glass. So she went over to him when she first got led into the cafeteria, like, why are you eating that? And his question, he just laughed. He looked at her. She was a beautiful, beautiful black woman physically. So he looked at her. They laughed. and Well, he laughed. And they sat and they talked from that day on. So in the book, she says, nobody else of African descent talked to me. Um, But she didn't really talk to them either. So (laughs) it went both ways. Sometimes we could be like that thinking people are treating us a kind of way, but how are we treating other people, right? So her and Saeed became very, very good friends, even to the point where they kissed a couple of times, but it didn't go far, as you can imagine. Um, But Saeed was um, more human than her from her perspective, and he was from Cairo, Egypt. He was what anybody would consider a um, an Arabic person. Um, But he was an orphan, and they got him, they brought him to Tower 7 when he was 13 years old, and they altered him. He was born a, a human like you and me listening. He ate food, regular food, but as an orphan, he would have to dig through, uh, he went through a lot, and he would eat, like, spoiled food and everything. And I guess because he could do that, he survived off of almost non-food when he was an orphan. That's what they took as a superpower for him and they altered him to the point where they removed his insides and redid stuff to the point where he could eat everything but human food he would eat glass and concrete and anything just yeah but he could survive though in ways that others couldn't like after the apocalypse if he survived He could eat off the buildings. He could eat, you know, anything. Whereas we wouldn't survive because we needed food, like regular food. So, Saeed and her got closer and closer and closer. And um, he died, though. And this is where we're meeting her. She started narrating it the day, the days after she found out that he died. Um, And his death set her off like it set her off in a way that the big eye couldn't predict she couldn't predict her friend her friend mule couldn't predict it just set her off um she had given him an apple from her food because she ate regular food so she had given him an apple and he was a painter so she thought he was going to paint it and everybody thought he was going to paint it and the big eye doctors, specifically Bumi from Nigeria, the scientist from Nigeria, told her that he ate the apple and because his body couldn't handle human food, he actually died from eating the apple. So, of course, she had guilt 
and her mind went to the Bible because she remembered the story about Adam and Eve and getting she gave him the apple that actually ruined his life, took him to death. So she was just, oh my gosh, she was torn up after that. And then um, right before she had given him the apple, she had started heating up from the inside out and she had started glowing. So they were doing all kinds of heating up experiments on her. And Bumi, the scientist from Nigeria, was the one that they had, because most of the scientists in the place were Caucasian people. But they, of course, had some people who were not Caucasian in the building because the world is made up of not just Caucasians. Even though when we see things and when we read things, it's generally Caucasians. But Bumi, the scientist from Nigeria, was there. And she was used to communicate with Phoenix in times, in painful times. So Bumi was the one to tell Phoenix that Saeed died. And Bumi was the one doing the heat up, the heating experiments on her. They put her in this glass cube. Now, you know, glass and heat, oh my God, it just, it, it multiplies the heat. So they would put her inside the glass and see how, how much they could heat her up. I mean, they were burning her. Um, and she was screaming out in pain and Boomy would come over the loudspeakers and like, relax, calm down. It's almost over. And she was like, how can I relax? I'm in pain. They were burning her to see how far they could take the burning, how much she could take it. So Boomy was like, I know you love stories, but you, would you like to hear a story while you're waiting for it to be over? So this is how she found out Boomy's personal story. So, Bumi describes herself as an African that grew up in Nigeria. And, oh my God, the way she described her home in Nigeria. Um, she lived in um, a gated community, a high gated community, in a big house. And her house had columns and porches and marble all over and huge winding staircases and um, colorful painting and art and sweet-smelling flowers and well-dressed Africans. Even their servants were well-dressed Africans with perfect wigs and suits and jewelry and flashy cars. And she asked her, could she see it? So, of course, she was dealing with Phoenix's mind. Get your mind off the pain. Focus on beautiful Nigeria And in my mind, she was speaking of being born healthy and plump and her beautiful mother who was short and dark skinned like her and they had money and car. And in my mind, I'm like, wait, you sound like you were living better than a lot of people in America. But the main reason that Bumi was doing what she was doing was because she wanted American citizenship. She was, of course, legal. She was working with the Big Eye Corporation, but she wanted that coveted American citizenship. And as an American, I'm like, really? Phoenix had described herself as African by genetics. She was very dark-skinned with very coily hair, 
Her hair was kept shaved because scientists and she, no matter how many books she read, didn't really know what to do with her hair when it grew out. And I'm thinking that Nigerian Boomi definitely had some coily hair up under that wig, but she wore a wig, so what was she going to tell Phoenix? And they definitely couldn't put a wig on Phoenix with all that heating up and glowing that she had begun to do. So once the heating up and glowing started, the little bit of hair that Phoenix did have on her hair began to fall out. It was so hot that the hair was coming out by the follicle. She would wipe her hands, swipe her hand over her head to wipe the sweat off, and hair would would come out from the follicle. So um, the only thing that gave her relief from the heating and the glowing was shea butter. They had a special, really, really thick shea butter made for her, and it would cool her skin. So she would slather, lather herself up with shea butter and get some sort of relief. But ultimately, there was no relief living in Tower 7, especially after the death of Saeed and the idea of rebellion having been planted in her mind by Saeed. The increasing heating and glowing just kept on increasing, increasing. And um, all she needed at this point was another catalyst, like a way, because she kept thinking of the question in her mind, how? How was she going to get out of there? So her friend, her only other friend in the tower, now that Saeed was gone, was Muo. He was like a brother to her, a true brother to her. Muo was also of African descent, and he could move through walls and floors, but only when he was naked. Clothing would would um, <laughs> clothing would block his ability to move between walls and floors, and um, so she was pondering the question of how she was going to get out of there. And Muo comes through the floor, and as soon as she saw him, she was like, "Help me get out of here!" Now Muo had known her as long as Saeed did. She wasn't like the rebellious type. Saeed was. Mule was, but she was like, why? She didn't have that that kind of. She was still young. She was like two, you know. Even though she looked forty, she was two, so she was accelerated. But she wasn't trying to get free at the time that they were. So when she asked for his help, at first he was, you know, he kind of laughed, and then they gave each other a look, and they both thought about her name. Her name was Phoenix. Now the definition of Phoenix is a unique bird that lived for five or six centuries in the desert. Then it burned itself up and rose from the ashes, rises from the ashes with renewed youth to live through another life cycle. They both thought of that definition, but neither one of them said it because it would be just too much to think about. Like, is that why you're heating up? Is that why you're glowing? What's going on? They didn't think about that. They just thought about, okay, Muo knows his powers. Muo knows his abilities. The only limits for him was he couldn't get through the exits of Tower 7. Like, they had it. He could go through the floor, floors and the walls or whatever, but he never was able to make it out of the exits. Um, Mule was also African. She describes him as very tall and thin with skin the color of crude oil. Mm. Um, and of course, he never wore clothes because he was always moving throughout the um, floors and the walls. When he wanted to eat something, he would just take it from the kitchen. And 
go about his business. And they they kind of left him alone because he couldn't escape. Even though he could move through their walls and floors, he was still a contained specimen. So they didn't worry too much about him, the big eye. But that was also a mistake because when it came time for her to, to make her escape, he was the one who helped her get through. He would open doors for her. He could um, also dismantle the security locks on doors. So she was asking him to help her escape. And she also wanted to know what Saeed saw. Why did he eat the apple? What had him so in such despair that he decided to eat the apple? During their last days together, Saeed had discussed with Phoenix seeing something, He, but he wouldn't tell her what it was, but it really had him upset. And Phoenix kept asking Mule, what did he see? What did he see? So Mule decided to give her what she was asking for, let her escape. But before she escaped, she was unfortunately brought face to face with one of the lab areas that was showing piles, piles of dead bodies and they weren't they weren't African bodies in this situation. They were Caucasian bodies. Rot and blood and feces. The smell was horrific, but it still couldn't match the the sight. And her brain went directly to the books where she recalled the word Holocaust, a genocide that happened during an early world war where Europeans were killing other Europeans that they were sure were inferior or threat or both. So after that sighting, she ran as fast as her feet could take her. Remember, all she ever did as part of her life was run on a treadmill, so she was a runner. And um, she was able to make it to the open door of the elevator that Mule set up for her. But And she could also hear him. I forgot that part. She could hear him like he could telepath his voice to her mind. So they didn't have to be in the same room. He could, She could hear him wherever she was, but she couldn't hear him past the ninth floor. Like he couldn't, they were on floor number 28, I believe. So the farthest he could get it was down to nine. And um, he got her to the ninth floor. And from there, she was on her own. She didn't have him in her head. He wasn't opening the doors for her, but she still had her glow. So by this time, Big Eye knew she was on the run. So they chasing, they chasing her. They get to the ninth floor and she stops and she sees this big glass dome. And behind the dome, this very, very tall, very, very dark African man with wings was just floating inside this glass dome. So she stopped there. Big Eye coming behind her. They stopped too. They was scared of the man and now he's in a glass dome they were scared too because she looking uh, there's something about this man in his dome so her body has started heating up and glowing green and she was able to make the plants accelerate their growing that was one of her powers she discovered in this time she can make plants really grow like right then fast right then so she had the vines and the plants grow and block off um the big eye guards and of course Boomy was there and so the plants left one opening and the opening was straight to the staircase and so she had the plants but before she made it out of that area 
she made the plants grow to the point where they busted the African man in the wing with the wings out and he flew out and oh god Boomy and the guards had a fit while they was worried about the man with the wings that flew out she going she going she going down the stairs she gets to the lobby and she sees her brother her friend Muo and of course he's not her real blood brother but you know she sees Muo and he says, Whatever you do, never let them catch you. And he he knew what she he was depending on what she could probably do, which was be the Phoenix that she was. And so he slipped through the floor and Big Eye was all around her and even outside they had clear cause remember tourists could come to the lobby park. She was down there, she saw the the backbone tree for herself with her own eyes and she had um so all the beautiful plants and the lobby was just as beautiful as she had read about it and then the people that were outside visiting the tourists got cleared out so in the building there was the big eye outside of the building there was a big eye they had their guns drawn boomy was telling them not to shoot but of course they shot and when they shot at her they set it off like there was a light that came from her and she just burned Everything burned, everything burned, everything burned. The building came down, everything came down except for the um the backbone, the tree. The tree just kind of shook the, the building off of it, like, because even the tree, ah, if you think about it, the tree was free now. So um, Phoenix finally did acknowledge the meaning of her name. And um, she was free. So now Phoenix's ashes, the tower is down, the backbone tree is free, the winged man is free. And as we move on in the story, a line that was said by a mule comes to mind. And he said, to Phoenix. It looks like your skin is nothing but a veil over something greater. So after the seven days, Phoenix became aware of being alive again. She was laying in the heap of jungle rubbish that used to be Tower 7. She smelled dust and rubble mixed with sweet blooming flowers. She overheard a tour group being guided through the the rubble and that's how she knew seven days had passed the tour guide said that um the backbone the great tree was all that was left standing and he described the tree as something that was still growing that at night the people in the city could hear the tree groaning as it grew some more that's how loud the groans were and it grew past like you couldn't even see it that's how tall it was but after the tourist group left she was able to come out from underneath all the rubble she was off balance and she was naked and she was making noise of course pushing items away but thankfully nobody was there and they, nobody heard her coming up out of the rubble so again she was naked and she was covered in dust as she emerged and she Imagine that she looked like a ghost, so she licked her wrist because even she, all she could see was dust. That's how much dust was on her. So she licked her wrist, 
and she smiled to herself because she was still as brown as a ripe shell of a coconut. She was still tall and lean with full breasts and strong legs and strong feet. And so she began to wipe all the dust off of her body so that she could try to see if she was still the same physical body that she was before she turned to ashes. She closed her eyes after realizing that, yes, she was mostly her same physical self. And um, she closed her eyes and remembered the soft yellow-green glow that had emerged from her skin. And um, she reminded herself that she was a beacon, a light, a light that had awakened the plants after she burned to ash. And the light that came from her awakened the backbone. And that backbone used its limbs and its roots to bring the entire tower down. So after remembering all of that, she opened her eyes again and she saw something white blowing in the breeze and it was a white dress and she knew only Muo would have done that for her he knew that as Phoenix she would be back to life and she would need clothing her friend had escaped that let her know her friend escaped and that he was still thinking of her and it was a cotton dress and it was long she loved long dresses and I just a side note, I am also a tall woman. And yes, as a tall woman, we love long dresses that come to the ankles. I love it. Um, so when she put on her dress, although it fit perfectly, it fell odd across her back. Like she had a slight ache across her back when she put the dress on. And then after she got the dress on, the backbone, the tree groaned again and it was moving its roots to move her towards it. So it moved her closer and closer and closer. And then when she got to the base of the tree, she saw a wooden box. And her thoughts began to get intense when she saw that box because she was like, she began to think of her origins for some reason. And she came to the conclusion that it was, it was, pointless to keep trying to finally unravel her origins it was a lost cause because it was like how am I gonna try to get to where I my origins but what she did accept and what she did learn was that despite her origins and the reasons for her even being created the way she was her light her specific light brought life her glow made things move she burned but she was a positive force her light had given the backbone the strength it needed to shake off Tower 7. And now the tree was giving her a gift. So she picked up the box and noticed that it contained a nut in the shape of a, the shape and size of a, a garden egg. And it had mazes and lines etched into it. And the lines were like circles and squiggles and geometric shapes. And when she was holding it in, in, um, in her hand, she felt heat rising up in her again. But this heat didn't burn her clothes and it, it didn't burn her skin and turn into, into ashes. Not this time. It was a message coming to her, a message from the seed. It let her know that it came from blackness, pure, quiet blackness. And it was telling her of its its own journey 
through blackness into tiny white, blue, and yellow lights as it flew through space and time towards a small planet and the red soil where it would land at the right time. So Phoenix understood that the seed was dug up out of red dirt to nourish the backbone tree, and that was why the backbone tree knew itself, the alien seed. Her thoughts were interrupted by a a burst of white light shining into her eyes, and then she heard somebody say, do not run, stay where you are. So she shut that box, and she took off running top speed. She knew that they wouldn't shoot her because of what happened last time that they did. And she knew she was made to run. She was born to run. They um, wanted her to be their weapon, a human bomb that self-regenerated to blow up another day. Part of her creation ritual was running on a treadmill daily. But now that she was running out in the open air, it was nothing but pure joy. She felt like she was flying. She kept up with the cars on the street running. There was a helicopter following her. And people were looking like, what the? She was getting her first view of the city. She saw palm trees, all kinds of trees, mango trees, iroko trees, rosewood and mahogany. She she saw tall buildings, lots of light, large screens, showing commercials and TV shows. And um, she smelled the sweet smells of vines that were wrapped around all the buildings which were meant to keep the city air clean according to the mayor these vines were actually engineered in tower four in the united states virgin islands and she knew this because of all her reading and um so some words some words some roads that she was running on were smooth but a lot of them were filled with potholes still she kept on running And eventually she started seeing herself on the large screens. And she knew that the people were like, this is fantasy meeting fantasy because they saw her on their portables. They saw her on the large screens. And then they saw her sprinting past them in real life. So she could only imagine what people were thinking. Like, this is is wild. The hump on her back started aching even more as she ran but she never stopped she kept running she in her mind she was like they're never gonna have me again ever so she ran under like a railway and then for a while the helicopters lost sight of her she saw the searchlight searching for her but it went in the opposite way so she when she came up out of the railway she slowed down she didn't want to be too obvious she knew that people would recognize her if she was just running wild or whatever. That's what they were looking for. The person was running wild. So she calmed down. She slowed down. And um, she started being drawn in by the smell of delicious Ethiopian food. So she came to a restaurant and it drew her in so much that she went in. And when she went in at first, the owner, um, his name was Betty Hoon, he was like, you, who are you? He recognized her, but he didn't want her to leave. He wasn't, he didn't see her or feel that she was a bad person. So he welcomed her into the restaurant and um, he talked about his wife, Makeda, who was in the back, but nobody else was there because the restaurant had been, had been in the process of closing at the time. So um, 
he sat down, he went back and told his wife, Makeda, that there was somebody out front, and Makeda came out, and she was um, tall and plump, and she had long braids, and uh, Phoenix couldn't help but think, why didn't they just do my hair like that? Why did they have to shave it off? You know, women were going to still, she was Phoenix, but she was still, you know, concerned about her her physical look. Um, but she sat down. She had a delicious, warm conversation and a meal with them. She had gotten some shea butter from them um, to put on her skin to calm down the heat of her skin. And um, they had discussed the fact that Makeda had scoliosis, and she thought maybe she had it. So they had looked at her back, but it was like a, a hump in her back. like It looked like tight muscles. And um, they enjoyed the meal, but they also knew that it was it was time for her to go because she couldn't just sit there. The, the streets were quiet, but she, Makeda and Benny Hoon, knew after hearing her story and her thinking that she was finally free, she stated that to them, but they knew she wasn't free, and they advised her that she had to go. So she found herself running again, um, and this time in empty streets, no cars, no people, Um, But the sky was swarming with helicopters, and she felt something giving in her back. And although she stumbled from the give, she didn't stop. She felt a painful rupture, and then she felt oozing down her back. So she went off into an alley to try to take a break and see what was going on with her body. So she touched her back where the um, dress had ripped open, and she felt warm bone and she felt soft things too and then she felt the middle and lower back part of her tearing open but it wasn't pain it was relief she actually sprouted wings with her peripheral vision she saw wet brown feathers it was time to go running again was different and difficult But eventually, the air reached down and took her. The wind hugged her, and her remade body was made to fly. Her wings made sense. Then there was Boomy again, advising her from the helicopter to land on the nearest building, promising, we won't hurt you. But Phoenix was no longer the naive Phoenix that Boomy thought she knew. Phoenix understood that Boomy was most likely banking on the benefits of experimentation in order to earn her American citizenship, gain from pain. But Phoenix still remembered what it felt like to have no face and to have bullets eat away at her legs, her belly, her arms, her chest. So she flew faster, and they did too. She had Boomy, she heard Boomy directing the soldiers to bring up their guns. So she braced herself for what was to come. She thought they was going to go ahead and fire on her. And she heard the bullets, but no bullets hit her. Then she heard something like shouting and screaming and the helicopter going down. And then she saw what they were aiming at. They weren't aiming at her. They were aiming at the black man with wings, the one she had set free. 
He was raw power. His wings were twice the size of hers. When they stretched out, they were just like albatross wings and they unfolded in three parts. And um, she noticed that he was even darker skinned now that he had been able to soak up the sun. He was flinging helicopters like they were nothing. And after all that, none of the helicopters followed either one of them as they flew together.